This week's podcast brought to you by On X Hunt. What if there was a service, guys? Imagine this that could not only tell you property lines so that you stay on the straight and narrow on your hunt, but also give you geographical features, um, things like watering holes. What about those north facing slopes that we all like to target on our elk hunts? Um, topo maps as well. I'm talking all of it. Yeah, well, that does exist, and it's through. Onyx Hunt. My good friends over at Onyx Maps have done the work for you. All you have to do is sign up for the subscription and you'll get 20% off when you use my promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out at onyxmaps.com. And here's the other thing, right? It's all right there on your cell phone. You just download the area, the unit that you're going to be hunting or the lease or ranch that you're setting up your whitetail blinds on. Whatever the case, you put it right there on your cell phone. So don't even need a garment or any of that other stuff. I'm a huge fan, and you will be too. Check it out, onxmaps.com. Here's to you and I at the end of the day. Forgiving all the wrongs we've made. We can set them up there's a little Cody Jinks kicking things off for us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thank you so much for dropping by this week as there's no place I'd rather be than talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, quick note here as we get things going. I did want to remind you about our Campfire Conversations series. If you're not aware of that, uh, for everyone listening on the radio, it's just some additional content that I'm putting out, um, trying to at least once a week, maybe at the very least every other week. And this past week, we had on Ben Cassidy of SCI. He's the Director of Government Affairs. They've got a campaign going to fight big tech. They're looking for your signatures, especially anyone who's been censored. Uh, I certainly have many times over the years. actually got a notification from Instagram this past week that my account might be deleted. <laughs> and they sent me the reasons why. None of them actually violated their community guidelines. Uh, they said I was selling a gun. No, I was doing a giveaway. They said I was inciting violence. I said no, I was legally harvesting a mountain lion. I mean, this was a these were posts from like a year ago that they just pulled up. So they've got some new kind of policy. Also, what did you think about uh, the press secretary, a White House press secretary, Jen Psaki coming out last week and saying that the government is, the United States government is now flagging content for Facebook that is, quote, misinformation. Well, what the hell is misinformation? Folks, it's whatever they want it to be. What if six months ago you said that the coronavirus, COVID-19, actually came from a lab in Wuhan, China? You'd be freaking right! But they would have deleted your post and claimed that you were guilty of misinformation. So it's a scary, scary time. It's like we're living in 1984. The government has no right to be involved in the flow of information. Um, and, and I can't remember a time in history where the side that was calling for censorship, segregation, like if you're unvaxxed like I am, um, disseminating propaganda and radical education when were they ever the good guys in history? Hmm? Can anybody tell me? Right, exactly. 
All right, uh, moving on. Let's talk outdoors. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Y'all can tell I'm passionate about that. Uh, but anyway, pull up a stool a little closer to the campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we're ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we're going to go back to our youth and talk a little bluegill fishing with longtime outdoor writer Joel Nelson. We're not talking about the little tiny ones that you used to catch down at the creek behind the house. We're talking about the big ones that go in a skillet. Where is he catching them? How is he catching them? What's his favorite time of the year to catch big panfish? And uh, and then what is his favorite recipe? We'll get into all that good stuff. After that, we are going to switch gears and talk Bob White Quail with the new executive director of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, Brad Kubechka, will be here. And so we'll kind of see what his vision for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch as he is taking over for the legendary Dr. Dale Rollins, who has been on the show many times, but at his age is slowing down, uh, not stopping. I think he's still going to be very involved with the uh, research ranch, and Brad has big shoes to fill, no doubt. But uh, Brad's also involved with Tall Timbers, which historically I think is based out of Georgia. Why is that relevant? Well, the East Texas Piney Woods historically were home to quail as well, and he's taken an interest in that area uh, as far as getting something going and getting birds back on the landscape in the East Texas Piney Woods. So cool stuff coming up on that front as well. Um, that's what we're going to do today. Going to be a good one. Looking forward to it. Let's do a quick giveaway. I've got some stuff from our friends over at Mossberg Firearms. I've got a Mossberg cap, t-shirt, koozie, and water bottle that we'll give away today. So just uh, email the word rifle. That's rifle to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, and we'll get you entered into today's Mossberg giveaway. Let's knock out a quick break. Coming up next, we're talking all things bluegill fishing with Joel Nelson on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Now I ain't the toughest hickory that your axe has ever fell, but I'm a hickory just as well. I'm a hickory all the same. There's something nostalgic about the old-timey general store, and that's exactly what you're going to find in downtown Goldwaith, Texas, at the Mills County General Store. They're licensed FFL with rifle, pistols, and shotguns, ammo, gun accessories, hunting accessories, deer, corn, and attractants, sporting goods. They've got a wide array of knives to choose from, plus insulated apparel for both work and camo for hunting season, fishing supplies. They've got foods like Anchor Tea, grass-fed beef, Dublin sodas, gourmet sauces, and a whole lot more. Also, Ace Hardware. From wall to wall, they have it all. Check it out. The Mills County General Store right there in Goldweight, Texas. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at 3curl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Stars, I'm only gonna ask you this. 
latest from the Chad Cook Band, Senorita Sky, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you, as always. Thanks so much for making time for us this week, as we're about to take a step back in time to our childhoods and revisit a type of fishing that, uh, you know, Certainly the first fish I ever caught was a bluegill, or what we called a bluegill. It might have been something else. Uh, we also called them perch, which they're not a perch, right? Uh, but they go by many names. Essentially, just little panfish that you're going to find in a pond or creek or lake. Basically, everywhere. That's why they're so easy to catch, right? And so much fun, and they're also delicious. But longtime angler and writer Joel Nelson will be here. He's got... Uh, He's an encyclopedia, basically, on bluegill fishing. And so we'll visit with Joel momentarily. But first, this segment proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and the Big Chingon. It's what I introduced my kids to hunting with as far as making them comfortable. It's the Taj Mahal of deer blinds. It keeps them dry, keeps them warm, and most importantly, it deafens noise that essentially a herd of elephants would make. And when you have three kids in the blind with you, Hey, the comparison's not that far off. I guarantee you that. Anyway, you can fit an entire family in the Big Chingon, as the Smiths have done many times. That's five folks in there. Or it's perfect if it's just you. Maybe you want to film your hunt as well. It's got plenty of room. It's got shelves. It's got cup holders. You can get it with windows for archery or just rifle or both. It's really whatever you want to do. But you can find the Big Chingon at allseasonsfeeders.com. All right, well, let's bring on our first guest joining us now to talk a little fishing. It's my pleasure to welcome longtime outdoor writer Joel Nelson to the show. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's fun stuff. Absolutely. So you are up in Minnesota. Absolutely. Sitting in my boat on a rainy day, putting stuff away, uh, cleanup duty, uh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, tidying up anyway. Right on, right on. I've been to Minnesota a couple times for fishing. Yep. Uh, Boundary Waters, awesome trip. Whether you do it on the U.S. or Canada side, highly recommend sure. it to uh, any fishing or really adventure enthusiast. Um, you know, portaging kind of sucks, but other than that, uh, <laughs> you know, well, the first time I went, I was in my late twenties. Now I'm almost forty, and uh, I don't think the portage really bothered me back then. But the older I get, the but I go with my dad, and he's. Uh, 66 so it's not like i'm looking at him to carry the canoe you know yeah well we we always did it the wrong way we uh, we wanted to get way back on the first day right fish is just to get to the deepest part of the, the area you could you know so the fishing was better mm-hmm. and we'd probably put on 20 25 miles a ton of portages but then you'd get there and for three days you're so sorry you could hardly cast right everybody right. was nursing the bottle of advil you know <laughs> yeah well the good thing about going with um especially guys my age my brothers our church friends and then our dads and you know the good thing with going about going with people that age is they don't want to go 25 miles so right yeah Yeah. nothing seven mile paddle is about max for a day um have you ever done the ontario side yeah the quetico i have one time Uh, in fact i went with where we where we went yeah it's unbelievable it's like the boundary waters on steroids i'm sure you'd agree Uh, it's just more remote. The fishing's even more incredible. We had a spot we called the corner grocery store where literally when we wanted walleyes, we just go around this point, drop some jigs, catch what you wanted, throw them in the boat. And it was time for dinner. You know, it was almost unbelievable. We've always been in either like 
August or early September in the walleye have been a little bit deeper, harder to sure. find without like a fish finder and not really knowing exactly what you're doing. So right. we've caught a, we've caught some walleye, but mostly it's smallmouth, um, a few pike here and there. And my dad, he got tired. He's a better angler than me. He got tired of catching um, smallmouth. He was bored with it. I mean, literally a green plastic worm, every cast, you know, they're fun <laughs> little fish. They fight like hell Scrappy, um, yeah. and they're delicious. Yep. But, uh, he was like, I'm bored of this. Let's, let's catch something else. And so he's, he caught a couple, uh, with a football head jig, like a big old jig dragging the bottom in like 40 or 50 feet of water. He's caught a couple really nice lake trout. Um, yeah. the first time we were like, we thought it was probably a walleye and we we're like, this thing is like dragging the canoe. We had to paddle <laughs> to shore just to land it. I mean, it was right, right. awesome. Yeah. Um, well, so what I wanted to talk about today is actually smaller quarry um bluegill yeah uh, yep. which which i want to get into but you know what before we do that um why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself i mean we know you're from minnesota you're an outdoor writer yep. um are you are you a hunter or primarily focused on fishing big, big hunter but fishing is kind of where i got my break about 20 years ago or so i just started on the internet forums which were popular back in the day and in minnesota ice fishing is where it's at so started helping out different people on these forums, giving advice. And before you know it, a couple of companies took note and I just started doing more and more writing. It snowballed. And now I work with some pretty big brands and do a lot of uh, representation and work at different sports shows, seminars, do some TV spots, things like that. And uh, enables me to go fishing all over and talk to people like you, you know, about the fun stuff. So where I found the article on a site called angling buzz. Um, yeah. Yep. That's where I found you. And then went and looked you up on social media. A lot of great content there if people are interested. Um, do you do you write for, like you're more of a freelancer, so you write for a bunch of different outlets? Yeah, exactly. Some of the local stuff is like the Outdoor News, Midwest Fish and Hunt, the national publications are like in Fisherman, Game and Fish Magazine, things like that. But I everything I do there, I also try to have a mirror copy of some sorts on my own page, which is joelnelsonoutdoors.com. So okay. that's the, the my online blog site where I just... I, I do it just like I did back in the forum days, which is where if I can be helpful, if I've learned something and I can pass it along, why wouldn't I kind of a deal? Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about bluegill. And, and for it. the sake of this conversation, I, I'm going to throw sunfish in there as well. And you can tell me yeah. if that's, if that's not kosher. Like no, no, that's totally cool. I, it's interesting, especially when we're talking nationwide. I mean, there's shellcracker, there's brim, there's red ear, there's so many different, and, and, and common and slang names that get mixed in between all of them. Right. So mm-hmm. it, whether you call it a bluegill or a sunfish or a sun, I, who cares? It's right. They're fun. And we all know what we're talking about. Right. Uh-huh. Well, you know, when I was a kid, we just called them all bluegill. You know, we sure. go down to the Creek and catch crawdads and bluegill. And, you know, you later on in life, someone's like, that's a red, a red eared sunfish. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's what I've always called a bluegill. <laughs> First of all, what, um, what is your favorite time of the year? to catch big and let's like talk about ones that you're going to eat. Right. I mean, every kid, yeah. probably the first fish they caught was a, a panfish of some kind. Right. Um, you know, we use cane poles, uh, and bacon or but I'm sure that there are better times of the years where it's just, you know, easier to find keeper sized fish. Right. For us in the North, it's early ice and it's the spawn time. And so that would be for you guys, you know, uh, after a winter turnover, but the spawn is always important. It's always popular. It's interesting though, in Minnesota, you know, 
our bluegill fishing has definitely declined, both in terms of size and numbers. And it's been really well documented. There's a really great study that was done where they took the Park Rapids, Minnesota newspaper record catches and they traced it back to the 1930s and 40s all the way to what it took a weekly winning bluegill back in 1941 to what was the weekly winning bluegill in 2000 and such. And they just marked a a general decline in size over time. And so for us, the spawn is incredible because that's when you're going to catch bigger fish and more of them, but it's also when they're at their most vulnerable. So there's a conservation aspect to it too. Oh, gotcha. I I wonder why that is um, as far as the decline in size or is it, have the predatory fish done better or the environment changed? The- it's it's definitely people and it's definitely okay. bag limit related, which have kind of shrunk in Minnesota according to the time. But, you know, Texas is a different beast. And so is middle America. You know, I've talked to guys from Iowa that complain about that conservation message. They're, they're like, you know, we have a longer growing season. The, the same things that you guys have in the northern climates don't necessarily apply to us. And uh, I'm not a biologist, uh, although I did uh, play one in college for a little while. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but the interesting part is, is that we have to ease up on some of our waters if we expect to keep the quality. And I would suspect a similar story is true down there, but maybe not quite to the same degree. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I'll be honest. I don't know that they've been studied as in-depth down here. Sure. Uh, and, and I don't know that people pursue them for the table as much down here. Absolutely. It's bass is everything down there, right? It's a huge crappie. If you're going to, if you're going to go freshwater fishing and you're going to try to fill up a cooler, you're going for crappie or sand bass essentially or catfish. Right. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing. So around the spawn time, it's really good up by us. I would assume it's great for you guys down there. The fish definitely congregate in the shallows side imaging and the advent of live imaging on boats and the electronics now has really changed the game because now we can see beds that aren't just visible along the shore when you have clear water. Now, if you're in a murky water system and they're bedding in eight feet of water, you can see them on the side imaging and you can target those fish. But again, you know, kind of with great power comes great responsibility. The the research that's been done in Minnesota is all about releasing the male bluegills. And it's contrary to what people might think. So, so you want to release some of the bigger males, at least in our neck of the woods, because those are the ones that protect the nests. Okay. So a little bit about bluegill biology there, the males are the, the nest protectors. Yeah, and, and the problem is, is when, when the males get pulled off the nests, there's something called cuckolder males that'll come in and they're basically sexually immature. Uh-huh. They're inferior males and they come in and they basically fertilize with inferior genes, thus kind of propagating that young sexually immature fish. And that's when you hear the term stunting, stunting, mm-hmm. these are stunted fish or that's a stunted bluegill. Well, that's kind of what they're getting at there. And so... Uh, you want to keep the genetics good, just like, you know, good bass genetics are good bass. Same thing is true for bluegills. Good genetics are kind of what keep a pond, a lake, a river system happy. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. And that's the first time I guarantee that cuck holders ever been said on this show. Uh, <laughs> but you're right about stunted fish populations. We have stunted ponds around where I live for sure. And like stock tanks and stuff. And yep. that's just when people... Well, the messaging is always don't eat bass, don't eat largemouth bass, throw them back. You know, forget that. I'm not, not going to keep a three pounder or, you know, right. or really. Right. But if you're pulling out, if every bass they're pulling out of a pond is one and a half pounds, you know that you've got a stunted population and you need to do, do some culling. Absolutely. Uh, so it's kind of the same concept um, just applied to different species there. 
Yeah. And, and it's hard. I understand the folks, I mean, at BASS and others have been at conservation of the bass species for forever. And to, to tell people to keep some bass or keep smaller bass is a hard message to take, but we've definitely found in our Northern waters. And I would suspect the same is true down there that the bass and bluegill populations, because there's such a strong predator prey relationship there, they go hand in hand. So great bassing means big bluegills in our neck of the woods. I would assume it's true down there too. Yeah, and that conservation message when it comes to bass, a largemouth especially, you know, it's evolved and, and continues to do so. I think my dad, he caught a eight something out of Lake Fork in the early 90s. And back then, and he fished for that fish all day. She was on a bed. Back sure. then, you didn't take measurements and take uh, take pictures and then send that to your taxidermist. No, you, you just took the fish to your taxidermist. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just like when I grew up on his uh, wall in his office, and I, you know, I tell him all the time, "When you die, that's the really the only thing you have that I want." You know, (laughs) that's kind of a morbid thing. There, I'm not cheering for you to die, Dad. But no, um, no, but when you do, (laughs) yeah, I want that fish. But now these days, you know, I caught a ten three out of a private uh, tank here, and took the measurements, just this, that, and the other, and uh, and just let the fish go. So, it's the same thing with it. Like down here, speckled trout and redfish are you know, king on the coast. Oh yeah. I've got a 29 and a half inch trout, which we, um, you know, I've got a replica on the wall. That's the only fish I have a replica of, but my son was just in here. He's like, what fish is that? And I was like, it's a trout. He's like, you kept it. I was like, no, 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 no. We, 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 took <laughs> we, get replicas. we let her go so she could make more big fish. So that's where, that's interesting. I didn't know we were going to actually get into the conservation component of bluegill today, but uh, certainly a fascinating conversation for sure. We are going to take a quick break. We'll come back and get into some of Joel's actual favorite techniques on how to catch those big keeper bluegill. That segment, by the way, brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. They continually put their money where their mouth is when it comes to conservation, protecting your rights, and educating the non-hunting public on why hunting is conservation. I'm a proud member. You should be as well. For more info, check us out at safariclub.org. Up next, we continue the conversation with Joel Nelson Outdoors. Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology has been helping me light up the night for over a decade. Uh, currently, got two incredible units. The Helion 2.0 thermal monocular, like you can detect things out in a field over a thousand yards. It's insanity. Plus, pairing that with a Thermion XP50 thermal rifle scope. Dude, it's like poor pigs, to be honest with you. Coyotes as well. It's uh, the technology alone has come so far in the last few years, and the price has gone down, so the working man can't afford it. The Thermion has internal recording. It has a diverse color palette. You want to do red hot, white hot, black hot, which is my favorite. You know, there's other ones as well. It's got too many to even count off the top of my head. It is the creme de la creme when it comes to thermal optics. It's the Thermion XP50. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. Spawn is right around the corner. Your reels have been re-spooled, and the tackle box is ready to roll. But the question is, can your truck handle another season of pulling your boat in and out of the water every weekend? Call David Boone at Third Coast Diesels. He'll make sure your truck is not what sinks your next fishing trip. 
offering a widespread array of diesel parts and services. Call 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com today. Was I just another ghost in this town? It was I, but no one was around. Did I? Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. That's the Brothers Osborne. Uh, recommended to us by Flatland Calvary last week. And you guys know that I really am out of touch with what's going on in Nashville these days. But those guys sound like real, that's real country music. So I've been enjoying them on Spotify over the last week. Um, we're still visiting with Joel Nelson talking all things bluegill fishing here today. And we'll pick that conversation back up here momentarily. But first, this segment brought to you by Vortex Wear and the new Sun Slayer hoodie. But don't think like big old traditional hoodie. Think more like breezy and airy and like you're walking in the clouds. But this thing's designed to keep those harmful UV rays off your skin. So if you're out there bluegill fishing, um, you know what to wear. The Sun Slayer hoodie from Vortex Optics. And you'll get 20% off all your Vortex Wear when you use my promo code LONESTAR20 at checkout. All right, well, picking it back up with longtime outdoor writer Joel Nelson, who's joined us from Minnesota today. Um, Let's talk about the spawn, and keep in mind that we just came out of the spawn here in Texas. It's typically when water temperatures are between 70 and 75 degrees. So it's been a cool summer, so maybe some folks are still seeing fish on their beds. Doubt it, but certainly possible. Um, with that in mind, Joel, what are your favorite uh, baits? And I mean, probably you're going to say, you know, can't be a live worm, but, right? Um, well, I think I think to me, it's all about the presentation of whatever you're putting down there. So I've caught fish on the spawn on a ton of different stuff, from little tiny, uh, like little firefly, little hair jigs, to tube baits, to other jig and plastic combinations, a plain hook and a worm. But I think the real key when it comes to spawn and it's key through the rest of the year too, but especially in the spawn is a slow fall rate. Um, I had a buddy in near the Tomahawk, Wisconsin area that showed me this deal where you take a, your average pencil bobber, you know, like a long pencil bobber, a clip on style and just a little bit of line, you know, maybe two feet if you're up shallow and a plain hook and you don't put any sinker on that line setup to get the bobber to tip up. What you actually want is you want the bobber to lay flat on the water. So you cast it out, a little chunk of crawler, it just so slowly and seductively falls in their face. They really have a hard time if they're on a nest, if they're near a bed, not eating something like that. And again, that could be a tube jig. That could be a little a little hair jig that has nothing on it. But if it's light and the fall rate is correct, they're really going to flock to it. And then, you know, if you got a bobber on, you're just looking for that bobber to tip up ever so slightly and you set the hook, they're off. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we go frequently to just little ponds around here. You wouldn't want to eat the fish out of these things because who knows how many, how much chemicals in there from, <laughs> from lawn runoff and stuff. But sure, the kids sure. love it. And, you know, they're, my kids are six, six, and eight. And they've gotten to the point where they can cast a bobber and a worm. And, but now actually, 
paying attention to what the bobber's doing. And, yeah. you know, half the time I'm like, Hey, your bobber's underwater. But, but these fish are easy to find. Um, yeah. There, there's a lot of them here. And um, I think, like I said, for me, even in my adult life, that's how I learned to fly fish was like, what's something easy that I can catch for sure and learn so that when I do go fly fishing, I don't look like a total ass clown. Um, <laughs> so that, that's, that's how I learned to fly fish was on th- those, those red ears. Um, what about during the summertime? How do things change? Where are you locating big fish? And, and please do try to apply it to both uh, yeah. lakes. So if you have a boat, great. And then for guys who are stuck on the bank, like me, no boat. Um, yep. How do we target the big keepers? So uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, when you get to the summer, you got to think about what's going on in a bluegill's life. And right now they're just, they're pummeled with bait. They have everything they need and then some. They've got not just bugs and invertebrates that are coming off the bottom, not just bugs and invertebrates that are coming off the top of the surface, whether they be grasshoppers or crickets or whatever. Mm -hmm. They've got small minnow species they can key in on. Things like snails, they'll even take on tiny little crayfish or crawdads. You know, we have smaller ones up by us that they can tear apart. There's just so much in the system right now and they don't have to go far to eat. But they're definitely concerned about predators too because as their metabolism rises to eat, well, guess what? So are in our neck of the woods pike and your neck of the woods bass. Uh-huh. Um, they're virtually the chicken nugget of the sea down there. So they got to they gotta hide. And for us, that's deep weeds. And so if you do have a boat, um, these deep weed edges are a lot of times the places to be. And, you know, it's hard. Uh, sometimes you really need to be in the weeds in sparse like cabbage or coontail that we have in the north. Uh, down south for you guys, if you don't have a boat or even up in the north, there's a lot of fish in the shallows actually too, because again, they need to hide, right? right. And as long as the oxygen requirements are there, uh, what a lot of folks do from a boat or even wading is those long poles, those real long rods, the dip fishing, mm-hmm. you just drop a little bait into these holes, you know, holes, holes in lily pads, holes in the vegetation and just dip and dunk and drop. And if I was fishing from shore, rather than avoid these big weedy flats and patches, I might try getting in there and wading in there with them. Cause like I said, I, you can hear them in there. You can hear them, you can hear them slapping and, and snacking on the undersides of these lily pads and get little water bugs and stuff. So whether you employ a deep strategy or a shallow one, it's kind of, you know, depending on what you got for a boat or not, but uh, both will work. Okay. And so obviously worms to go to there, night crawlers, what we use down here. Yeah, crawlers are fine. The, the thing is, though, is that plastics these days are so good. Um, and, you know, you can order anything online these days. So even if they're not in local retailers, all you need is a one to three inch, depending on the size of the gills you're targeting, little chunk of plastic, a little flicker tail. And what you'll find is, is that you're not constantly rebating. They're much hardier. It's much more efficient. If you're in one of those situations where fish are really biting and biting well, Oh my God. Versus having to wait out there and open up the crawlers and spill half of them in the water and oh, try baiting for three kids nonstop. It's like, you can't, the, and the fish are so aggressive. Like a lot of the time right. I'm never, I'm never fishing. I'm just baiting hooks and handing it back. Exactly. To you could never keep up. Whereas with, with plastics, especially in the summer, you know, it's the same with walleyes or any of the other things we're doing. You just try, you got to keep them moving a little bit. If, if it's a crawler, well, it doesn't matter whether it's moving or not, right? The mm-hmm. fish has got all the taste, the feel, the smell, everything, right? 
Uh, whereas with plastics, if you just keep the bait moving ever so slightly, they'll come right up to it and usually crack it. So I fish a lot of plastics in the summer. What about as far as your favorite recipe? Like what's your Mm. way to to cook these things once you've got Oh man. Oh man. Um, I've had people, uh, scale them, you know, cleave off the head, scale them, gut them, fry them whole. And that's a really cool way to do it. Um, the presentation's awesome. The, the crispy skin without the scales is super good. But just for a standard go-to, you know, for me, a lot of times if I have a fish fry, I'm trying to feed a good number of people. And I want the fish to go a long ways because I, nothing worse to me than wasted fish. And usually right. fish doesn't get wasted, but I like fish tacos and who doesn't, right? Fish tacos are pretty awesome. And so I typically just fry them as is. I have a recipe that I take some, um, some cabbage, slice it thinly, take a half of a lime, squirt it in there, about a tablespoon of honey, mix it in, salt and pepper it up a little bit. And that's the slaw that goes on the fish. And then uh, I make uh, kind of a, a, it's like, it's, I don't know, I call it like a Baja sauce. It's basically a little bit of sour cream, a little bit of mayo, some chipotle, canned chipotle and adobo blended down. Do that to taste however spicy you can take it. Salt, pepper, and a little bit of lime juice. And man, you have got something that's pretty enviable. Like a lot of people are like, holy cow, how did you do this? And it's like, well, it's really, it's basic stuff. You know, the the fish is the star though still. That's tough to beat tacos, especially fried fish ones for sure. So you ever fry and eat the tails? So it's interesting you say that because uh, when we were kids, like that was, yeah, for sure. Like the uh-huh. crunchy tails was so good. But nowadays people, you did that. A lot of people look at you like, are you crazy? How could you eat that? It's like, well, they crisp right, right up. They're great. It's like eating a <laughs> potato chip. I love it. Yeah, exactly. I, we, uh, you know, when we fry fish, a lot of the times it's pre, you know, it's stuff that you caught before you package. If you, if you're having a big fry, you know, not usually is it the same day, unless you're, it's a smaller meal, you know, with your family. But, uh, in that case, a lot of times the tails are gone. So we tend not to get them, but, uh, yeah. when I can do them fresh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I did see in that article I referenced earlier on angling buzz that you do some trolling for yes. bluegill as well. Talk about oh, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So crappy trolling is just starting to gain popularity. I guess if you're talking the tournaments, right? Crappy tournaments, people have been trolling for crappies for a long time. Right. Um, but not a lot of people know it's really effective for bluegill. And what we do a lot is in the summertime, especially where you've got the situation where there's food everywhere in the system, the fish can be literally anywhere, shallow, deep, wherever you're fishing a new body of water. You've never been there before. How do I find them? Trolling, um, with spinner rigs, we actually call them uh, live bait harnesses or crawler harnesses here in the north. It's really simple. It's just a simple spinner rig on a clevis, a couple beads, and then one to two hooks if you're trying to hook a night crawler, right, to just bury them in the crawler. And then that's usually on a three to six foot lead. Uh, it's usually monofilament. And then there's a swivel at the front end. And what we do is we put on anywhere from a 16th to as high as a quarter ounce bullet nose slip sinker for a weight. Okay. So kind of depends on the weight, on the areas you're targeting, how fast you'll be pulling. If you've got a boat, you know, if you've got a trolling motor, but you're really just trying to get anywhere from five foot to 12 foot down along the weed edge that you'd be pulling, right? And go 0.5 to 0.8 miles per hour on GPS uh, as fast as a mile, mile 0.2. Um, the slower 
speeds you're going to do if they're finicky or if it's a cold day, kind of a cold front. If it's active prime time, you know, right before dark, early in the morning, you can book that speed up there to one, 1 1.2 and literally just hold your rod out to the side, make a, just an easy pitch right behind the boat, hold the rod steady and let the spinner do the work. And it's amazing because if you've got a small pond or a small lake, very quickly you can identify stretches of shorelines that are holding good bluegills. And then you got a choice. We can keep trolling them or we can slow down and pitch at them, you know? Sure. Right on. Okay. So a little outside of the box uh, technique there that you wouldn't really associate typically with. Uh, no, no. Who trolls for bluegills? It sounds right. crazy, I read that it sounds crazy. That's, that's interesting. Fascinating. Um, as we are wrapping up, did you see that, uh, that world record bluegill that was caught? What was it? Maybe two, um, six weeks oh, yeah. ago or so? Yeah, the suit for sure. That was incredible. Yeah, I, I've been trying to get down there for a couple of years now. Uh, Al Linder, who's probably well-known even in your area, Al is former owner, runs, uh, runs Linder Media now, he used to be a big part of In Fisherman, he and his brother founded it. I talked to Al about it, and he lived at Havasu for a while, and they would catch them bass fishing, and these things would be eating bass jigs, like, <laughs> no problem, like, and so... And even he said, he goes, you know, the standard technique down there for him is a quarter ounce jig head with half a crawler. Like that's for us, that's like walleye and smallmouth size for us, you know, it's bluegill size bait for them. I think it looks like a football. I, I, I don't remember what it weighed. It was almost six, six pounds. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, It was over five. It was over five for sure. And I, you know, the funny thing is I've tried to get down there and I've tried to hire a, a guide just to kind of get the lay of the land. And couldn't find one you know most of them were bass guides and people are like yeah at the time this is probably five six years ago you want to you want to go catch a what you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that was incredible um well so what is the bag limit up there i don't even i'll be honest with you i don't know what our bag limit is in texas and you know in a lot of states the bag limits are so high that you never encounter what the top end would be or or they're non-existent in some states um for Right, right. Yeah. For for us, the bag limit is is uh, twenty fish, unless otherwise stated. We have a lot of special regulations. Minnesota uh, can be affectionately known as not just the land of ten thousand lakes, but the land of ten thousand regulations when it and comes mosquitoes. to the, Yeah, a lot of mosquitoes. There's a lot more than ten thousand of those, maybe yeah. per acre. You know, <laughs> but but uh, but no, uh, we have a lot of experimental five fish lakes too. So these are lakes that. The DNR has noted, hey, there's trophies in here. There's big fish. We're going to only let you keep five out of here. But if we're honest with ourselves, by and large, on a lot of these bodies of water, you're going out with your kids. You know, if, if, if the limit's 20 per person, or let's say it's five per person even, I've got two kids and a wife, you know, that's, that's for us, that's 20 fish. 20 bluegills goes a hell of a lot longer further than people would imagine, you know, especially if you're making fish tacos or something, you know, so. Yeah. We always yeah. rip on Wisconsin and the Wisconsin fish fry, which is nothing but line and kugels and fish. And in that case, you do need more fish, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us what, what pound test you like to use specifically and what size hook, because these fish do have tiny mouths. Um, I think people lose a lot of fish, whether it's right. bluegill or crappie, whatever, like, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you put a, a, a hook that the fish can't swallow, then you're just wasting your time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most of the sizes of hooks that I use are related to the sizes of the jigs that I'm throwing. And I will be honest, there are times on good trophy waters where I'll use a larger hook. And usually that's associated with about a 16 ounce jig head. 
Um, anything 16th ounce and, and heavier is it's going to be hard for a bluegill to get its lips wrapped around. Um, you start talking 32nd ounce, 64th ounce, because again, so many of the hooks I'm using, I don't have an exact hook size for you if it was just a plain octopus hook. Right. But the, the funny thing is, is like you said, uh, a lot of people do oversize. And the only time I do is when I'm trying to exclude smaller fish. But mm. as far as pound test, so much of what I do is, is, is in weeds or heavy cover, or it's involved with areas that there's bass and pike. And bluegill tend not to be as line shy unless it's ultra clear water and they are known to be finicky. I can think of like Okaboji and Iowa. I can think of a couple of clear water systems in Minnesota that are like that too. So for the most part, I don't worry about it because unless you're in those systems, um, you can get away with six pound test and six pound is on the heavier end. Four would be perfect. But again, I'm going to tangle with a bass. I know I'm, I just will. That's the way that's going to work. And so I can either break off fish and weeds and stumps and rocks and all this other stuff, or I can just, you know, land those fish and keep on fishing. So that's, that's what I tend to do. The, uh, it's always a race between my kids to see who catches the best. Inevitably someone does. For sure. Right. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's never, it's never a big one. They break it no. up anyway, but, and you know, you're using those small hooks, but we're trying to catch bluegill, but the one that catches the bass rubs it in the other's face, you know, <laughs> until the next time we go. That's so, right. That's well, kids are, where can folks find you again? Um, I, you can find me easily on social media. My handles are at Joel Nelson Outdoors or on my blog and website, which is www.joelnelsonoutdoors.com. All right, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and, and talking a little fishing. And uh, like I said, highly recommend that that Boundary Waters trip. Um, with, like, Well, you can't go to Canada right now, but someday maybe we'll be able to go back to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a hell of a good time, and and it's a you know family kid friendly deal uh, sure. as well. So you guys are, uh, I think, an under an underrated hunting and fishing destination. We got a lot of lakes, a lot of wetlands, woods. Uh, it's definitely a sportsman's paradise here in the Upper Midwest for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, Joel. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Cable. All right, take care. Yeah, you too. So there you have it, taking us back to our childhood, but with certainly a more refined approach, I would say. Uh, thanks to Joel Nelson for talking bluegill with us today. That segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. Land is the one thing they ain't making any more of, folks, but we all want it, right? Whether that's to hunt, fish, run cattle, or just get the hell out of the big city, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Coming up next, we'll shift gears and talk all things bobwhite quail with Brad Kubechka, the new executive director over at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors Show. You don't like the way I'm living. You just leave this long-haired country for long. Cable here, and if you're listening to this show, you probably like ARs. And I'm not talking about antler restrictions. I'm talking about, you know, ARs, modern sporting rifles. And Timber Creek Outdoors has the best way I've found to take your AR to the next level. It's the Enforcer Kit. It features high-end performance parts and jaw-dropping looks. It's perfect for sportsmen, competitors, firearms, enthusiasts, and people who trust their lives to their equipment, like you and I. When combined together, these parts improve usability as well as ergonomics, big word there, 
and dependability of any small framed modern sporting rifle. Timber Creek products are manufactured by Americans in the USA. God bless America. And they implement uncompromising quality control and offer a lifetime warranty. They've got a bunch of different color options, something for everybody. I've got a Hunter Green Enforcer Kit on my 224 Valkyrie. Absolutely love it. You will too. Check out the Enforcer Kit at TimberCreekOutdoorsInc.com. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hey, this is Chris Knight, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But I sit down by the highway, I hear those big cats growl. Where the quail gonna fly to, where will the rabbits run now? I watch them tear all the hell, used to be my church. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, little Chris Knight. Dirt, the name of that one, uh, from what well, Chris has been on the show three or four times now, and he even remembered my name the last time, even smiled once or twice. You know, I used to say Chris had a personality like a dead moth, uh, but I think I'm growing on him. So I uh, look forward to our next uncomfortable conversation. Still one of my favorite singer-songwriters, though. Uh, this segment, as we are about to talk quail, and anytime we're talking Bob White's or blues, uh, that segment is going to be brought to you by Quail Coalition and Park City's Quail. When it comes to raising money for quail conservation and quail research, no organization does more. And also, keep this in mind, the money's raised stay local. So your dollars aren't funding some conservation project in Georgia's Piney Woods, right? Um, not that that's a bad thing, but people want to see the fruits of their labor or of their monetary contributions in their backyards, then that's not a bad thing. So check out Quail Coalition if you are interested in being a part of the quail conservation effort. And with that being said, let's bring on our next guest. Uh, He is the new executive director of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. It's my pleasure to welcome Brad Kubechka to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, the uh, elephant in the room, you're taking over for a legend in uh, <laughs> Dr. Dale Rollins, who's been on the show I, a lot of times over the years to talk quail. He's probably, I mean, Dale's got to be in his 70s by now, uh, just based <laughs> off the number of quail seasons he's told me he's participated in. Yeah, um, a lot of quail hunting. I don't know that many seasons. He's in his 60s, uh, but I oh, can't remember the, the exact number. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, he retired, and your smiling young face is here. You don't, you don't look like you're uh, that old. No, not too old, but uh, Dr. Rollins has not retired. He's actually our outreach director, and, and we're really um, happy to have him in that position because uh, he gets to do what he loves the most, and that's educate and, and outreach. Um, so we're, uh, we're, we're strategically putting those um, people in those positions, those that get to focus on research can focus on research, and of course, Dr. Rollins can focus on um, the outreach side of things, which everybody knows how well um, he does at that or how, how good he is at that. Yeah. Uh, no, he's larger than life. 
I don't think he he's not the type that seems like he'd retire until he's you know six feet deep anyway. So, <laughs> um, well, cool. So, when did you take over as the uh, executive director? June first was the the um, start date of acting directorship. Right. Uh-huh. And what is your background in uh, wildlife management? You know. We I started actually at the research ranch in 2013 as an undergraduate and intern out there. And uh, the second year I, I went back, I was, I was talking to Dr. Owens and telling him, you know, I don't know if I want to um, stay on or look for different positions. He's like, well, if you stay on, you know, I have this research um, idea in mind. And I, I thought that was um, intriguing to me because I wanted to do some research stuff. That was also the year I got bird dog pups. And, and the first year I was doing research, I didn't really get, I didn't really get it, you know, um, but it was the the quail hunting aspect and having bird dogs that really made it click with me. Uh-huh. And, and I understood at that point why everybody loves it as much as they do. So I, I continued on out there and actually did my master's with the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation through Texas A&M University Kingsville um, under Dr. Rollins and Dr. Fidel Hernandez. Um, and then a- after I finished up my master's down there, I, I, I told myself, well, I kind of want to get my PhD and I'm either going to stay in Texas and do something completely different um, to diversify or move somewhere else completely different and do something similar. And of course, I have a passion for upland game birds. So uh, I uh, was entertaining the idea of um, Tall Timbers and and their um, projects. I'd interviewed with uh, Dr. Terhune at Tall Timbers and um, ended up having a project um, open for brood ecology. So uh, that's where I've been the last four years with it was with the uh, Tall Timbers and the University of Georgia um, studying brood ecology. And, yep. Okay. So as far as those bird dogs, because you, that's interesting, it doesn't sound like you grew up really entrenched in, in quail hunting. No, you know, growing up, my dad used to actually talk about Bob White. He, you know, say, yeah, in the eighties, we had Bob White. We never barely saw Bob White where I grew up in, in Fayette County. We were a couple hours from any good quail hunting out there. So it was a, it was new to me. And that's why I took the internship at the research ranch. I thought quail was different. I wanted to do something different. I thought everybody else was interested in deer or pigs or something like that. Waterfowl and, and quail was different for me. So I just really wanted to diversify and I was hooked. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how it played out for me. I, I didn't grow up hunting, grew up fishing. Uh, and about the time I was in one of my illustrious years of college, uh, my buddies were like, Hey, bring your dog. We're going, we're going duck hunting. I had a chocolate lab at the time. And I knew he was deathly afraid of fireworks. And I've told this story on the air, but, um, you, you're obviously not familiar with it. So I, I said, all right, let me wait some tables, get enough money to buy an 870. And we'll all come see what this thing's all about and take the dog. And my God, they were terrible shots. You'd have thought they never hunted either. I mean, ducks landing in our faces and no one's hitting anything. And, and the dogs are sitting there. I had a time to the blind. As the first time somebody shot, he ran off time to the blind. Finally, somebody knocks the duck down and I let Maverick off of his lead and he went and got the duck and brought it back. And that he was hooked. I was hooked. He was, he was, fixed of being gun shy he was like oh i get to go get ducks when these things go boom okay i'm in uh and that was almost 20 years ago so uh it's all yeah it's all about the dogs for me too here that's why i'm doing this for a living essentially was that uh that relationship with the the dogs um what kind of uh, bird dogs do you have 
You know, I started with uh, two English setters, and at the time, uh, they were, I guess you could say, started. Uh, Dr. Rollins told me, I know a guy that has some bird dogs, and he's willing, to, he's looking to get rid of them, you know, he's looking to place them. And I said, okay, well, um, so I, I said, let me get this contact information. So I reached out and said, you know, why, why are you looking to get rid of them? He said, well, they're dying. I said, well, I don't want no dying dogs. He said, well, they're <laughs> dying of boredom. This was 2014. It was a lull in, in Texas for quail, and he knew I was at the research ranch. And I thought, well, I could put them, I could give them a good home on the research ranch. They could find bird dogs out there. So uh, my first two dogs were English setters. I got them when they were six years old, six and a half or so. Mm -hmm. um, and it took a little while for a dog that's six and a half to recognize a new owner. But it was, it was, uh, it happened uh, after a little while, about a year. And, and uh, it was, they, they were great dogs and I didn't have to try too hard, I guess, to, really have them respect me that they did a great whoever the guy that owned them um, before me did a great job in training um so i was really fortunate that i had a good starting experience that i didn't just get um some run-of-the-mill dog and uh since those have passed uh, my wife has a drop har and um it's hard drop har um she'll claim it sometimes when it's been good and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we'll claim it oh they're a very versatile breed from absolutely all german dogs yeah and uh or whatever I, yeah and I got a um, Brittany uh, last week. So now we have a uh, Brittany and a draw at the house and my black lab lucky. And you're, you're mentioning something about a lab and um, them connecting and whenever things go boom and something falling and that, that it lights up. Well, you know, I started hunting with lucky. I had him in, in high school and I would shoot at doves, but I didn't really hit them. <laughs> right. I had an 870, but it didn't really fit me. Um, and then as I got a little older and got to college, I started hunting a little bit more. And I got a, I got a gun that fit me a little better. And it was something about it that I could swing. I, could, I hit stuff a lot better. Um, and I brought Lucky out then. And before, it didn't seem like he was too interested. And after I started actually hitting some birds, he put two and two to get it together real quick. I was like, oh, those things are supposed to fall down when you shoot. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so I've had, I've had a menagerie, I guess, of pups. And, and, and Lucky is, how old is Lucky now? Twelve and a half. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my female lab is about to be eleven, and then I have a pup in here with me that's six months old, and she's a she's a terrorist. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't remember being so hard. I I didn't have kids when I my first two labs. You know, it was I was in college when I got the first one. Then I was married with very little responsibility uh, when we got Belle, the eleven year old now, and this one is just like you turn your back and something's destroyed. Right. Well, I got my um, pup sitting outside the office, just hoping that he doesn't uh, start crying here in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> He's nine weeks old. Yeah. Oh, well, he'll grow out of it. Fingers mm -hmm. crossed. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So as far as your position, what, what are you most excited about? I mean, it, obviously a new administration comes in and things change. Um, Dale had been there for so long. Um, what do you envision as you take over at the uh, research ranch? Well, there's so many opportunities there. Um, so I, I tend to have a Cadillac appetite and a Chevrolet pocketbook, you know, mm -hmm. so I think of, I have this huge idea of all the things that we could do as far as research and, um, and outreach. Um, some of those, including, and, and, and some of the things, things I, I think are going to be in the pipe for next year as resources allow but, uh, you know, the Quail Masters program that Dr. Rollins is renowned for, for developing it has since uh, been discontinued because it was um, under the, 
the banner of the reversing the crawl decline initiative. And we want to revive that under the research foundation banner, as well as the statewide crawl symposium. Uh, we want to adopt that because that fell under that same banner, which has since been discontinued. We want to, we want to bring those back. I'd like to start regional surveys. Um, you know, if there's leases in the area where, where folks are leasing and they don't have an estimate of, of quail abundance, uh, we fly helicopter surveys and essentially they get to, um, uh, they see where those coveys are located. We can identify the limiting factors on those properties and also provide a, uh, I guess, a harvest limit, a harvest prescription to avoid overharvesting. There's a lot of things there to increase our relevance and also to increase our connection with our constituents. So uh, uh -huh. obviously we have big new facilities being built. So collaboration with other scientists and, and hosting different um, workshops for biologists and students and, and the public in general, there's so many opportunities that are, are really unfolding and developing right now. And, and I'm just excited to be a part of it. And there's a lot of research that I'm excited to, um, to do, but it's one step at a time, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. Well, you, you mentioned you guys recommending like a harvest prescription or a guideline. Uh, on my deer lease, we have a prescription of zero. And do you know who uh, owns my deer lease? I don't. Jay Stein. <laughs> okay <laughs> no, jay, jay is uh it's his it's his family's property it's been in their family since the 1800 late 1800s but um it's in clay county we don't have a lot of quail most of the neighbors have clear cut their stuff for ag and jay has done a just an amazing job of keeping it managed for bob whites and it's not a massive place so we just enjoy looking at the quail we don't hunt them uh, I think if Jay, if you wanted to shoot one sometime, you might say, okay, but generally speaking, you know, we just enjoy the fact that they're out there and, and nobody else seems to have them around us. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, but they're, Jay they're... is the executive director of, of, uh, quail coalition and, uh, he's, they sponsor all of our quail related conversations. So, uh, anyway, right, and quail coalition is a big um, supporter of the research foundation, the work that we do. Uh -huh. um, since the inception of the Research Foundation, Park City's Quail and, and Quail Coalition in general, the other chapters um, have also been a huge benefit to, to the Research Foundation, our projects, but also our operations on site. Um, so we can't thank them enough for the help that they've done out there in West Texas for us. Well, they put their money where their mouth is. There's no doubt about that. That's right. Uh, as far as funding uh, quail conservation and research in Texas, that nobody does more. And I think, I don't know if they've done it yet, but I think they're planning on expanding possibly to other states. I know that was... Uh... Yeah, there is some discussion about that and it's, it's exciting. Um, hope something gets off the ground. It's just going to take a group of uh, sportsmen to lead the way and lead the pack. And we've, we've hosted some of those folks from the Southeast at the, the big dinner, which can be a little intimidating, you know, at the Park yeah. City's dinner, if you've ever been, it's a huge um, ordeal. Uh, yeah. which is a lot to live up to, but there are a few mo more modest um, events. And that, I think that that's very reasonable and tangible um, for a lot of folks around here and in, in these regions. Oh, no doubt that banquet is a doozy, uh, but it's amazing how much money, especially Park City's quail has been able to raise uh, because of it. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. We'll come back and hit on some of the stuff you're doing with Tall Timbers and their new role here on the Texas landscape, possibly reintroducing quail into the East Texas Piney Woods. So cool stuff there. That segment brought to you by Big and J Squared. If you're looking to pattern that big buck this season, well, uh, I know it worked for Henry and I last year, and I plan on using it again this season. 
You can find their entire lineup of whitetail attractants at BigandJ.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Just an old mutt Riding shotgun Getting my seats all muddy in the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. Came on a summer's day, bringing gifts from far away, but it made it clear it couldn't stay. No horror was his home. The sailor said, Bring me your finger. What a good wife you would be. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Looking glasses, uh, Brandy, you're a fine girl. There's an oldie for you. When I was a kid, that's all I was allowed to listen to. Um, <laughs> I didn't find my dad's classic rock A-track tapes until years later. I was like, ooh, ZZ Top, Led Zeppelin. Dad, why the hell are you only letting me listen to like Marvin Gaye and Sonny and Cher and stuff? But anyway, there are a ton of good oldies from the 60s, 70s as well. Nowadays... When you turn on the oldie station, it's like Michael Jackson and Madonna. And I'm like, God, this sucks. What does that tell you? Mm, I'm getting old, I suppose. Um, all right. Let's pick it back up with our conversation with Brad Kubechka of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And this segment is brought to you by NUMA, the new apparel of the show. They've been around for about four or five years now. They are a Texas-based company that really specializes in making quiet, comfortable, high-performing gear for the bow hunter. Um, I just no longer philosophically agreed with uh, First Light, to be frank with you. And it's no knock on the gear or the people that work at First Light, uh, but it just no longer was a good fit for me and Numa stands for the ideals and, and values that make me who I am. So glad to be home, finally, uh, with NUMA. And you'll hear a lot more about NUMA in the coming weeks, months, hopefully years, right? It's going to be a long-term relationship that I'm looking forward to. Uh, okay. Well, Brad, you know, we talked a lot about the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, your vision as we move forward, uh, taking over the reins from Dr. Dale Rollins. You're also highly involved with Tall Timbers and have got a vision for East Texas as well. Tell us a little bit about that. So Tall Timbers Research Station has uh, been around since 1958, actually. Sorry, so this is the station, not the... Is there a Quail Coalition chapter out there? Uh, well, no, there's not a chapter out okay. here. Um, now, well, damn it, uh, we well, need to get one out there. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so our, our Western Piney Woods Quail Program is a regional program um, under the game bird um, finger, our um, department or lab at Tall Timbers. And uh, Tall Timbers has a, a legacy of quail research um, in the southeast. 
dating back over 100 years since the early 1900s. Um, about the same thing most folks experienced in East, East Texas over the last couple of decades. Um, people were losing their quail and they, they hired a guy by the name of Herb Stoddard to research quail on these plantations, quail plantations, hunting plantations. And uh, he realized that fire was is absolutely necessary um, to sustain quail populations in this area. And uh, he, he wrote The Bob White Quail, um, which is a, a large book. It's the Bible of Bob White Management. And that was right here um, in the Red Hills region. And, and so that, that Paul Timbers has a long, I guess, uh, a long history of quail research since really 100 years ago. Um, so since that time, they've been expanding to different areas uh, in South Georgia. The Albany Quail Project was established in the 90s and was in, an independent effort at the time. Um, and these two efforts that uh, I direct, the, the Western Piney Woods Quail Program in East Texas and, and the Research Ranch, they're, they're independent efforts. I just happened to direct uh, both programs. And uh, so at the time, you know, the, we, we've been expanding with Dull Timbers and, and those regional programs and uh, one of the regional programs is established in East Texas, um, which as resources and conditions allow us to grow, will eventually encompass Western Louisiana and, and Southwest Arkansas. But uh, we didn't want to limit ourselves. So when we initially were, were beat off in this idea around of establish some, something in Texas, uh, we didn't want to limit ourselves just to East Texas. So we, uh, we considered the Western Piney Woods Fall Program. That's where we're, we're starting at in, in East Texas because um, there's a lot of potential in that area. And uh, are there any know, that, quail left in that area? You know, there there's some some small pockets of quail uh -huh. in, in certain areas, and which will make it difficult, but and uh, but I don't think impossible. And I've seen, had I not moved out of Texas, I believe for my PhD, I would have never thought it was even worth trying to, to do anything in East Texas. Yeah. And I've seen some of the successes that Tall Timbers has had um, at restoring populations in North Carolina and. And working with landowners one-on-one -on -one and then and developing this whole program and i realized it is tangible and then there's just a whole a whole slew of support and we actually had a, a and a gentleman by the name of mr chuck Ryland say uh, you know what i want tall timbers model in texas and uh mr Ryland put um put his money where his mouth was and he said um let's get it there what do we need to do and so uh we said well we'll try we'll see what the interest is and, and we'll try to um start shaking the trees and uh, lo and behold, there's a ton of interest in that area for quail. And I've had a lot of folks um, reach out and, and say, hey, I'd love to do something here. And actually, I saw some quail, blah, blah, blah. And you kind of in the back of your mind, you don't know if they're wild birds or pen raised birds, but there really are a few pockets of wild birds in certain areas. So the key is to, to do the management um, first. If they don't respond, we, we might resort to something like translocation, but um, that tends to be our last resort. The first um, first steps are always yeah. work on habitat. But yeah, translocation is really the only way to do it because pen raised birds just won't take in the wild. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah we we only work with wild birds on both programs. The, the um, research ranch only. I mean, all the birds of prey are like, oh, thanks for the snacks. You know, it's like, <laughs> that, that's pretty much right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let me ask you this: is it is it a conflict of interest? So you're you're obviously in the business of raising money for conservation at the end of the day. So you run these two different organizations in the tall timbers, West Texas, Piney Woods, and then also obviously Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Um, how do you juggle that as far as, hey, I'm going to hit this potential donor or sponsor up for money for this one. 
now are the constituents at the other organization going to be jealous or? Um, well, I think we need to build bridges mainly. Uh, um, historically, I believe that there had been this, um, different organizations operating in silos, but I think uh, building bridges is important. So both both organizations are in, in, in my uh, mind in a stage of growth. Both mm-hmm. are uh, um, securing an endowment. And uh, part of my job, yes, is um, administration and part of that, but it's also research and, and outreach. But like you said, you know, we do have to, to handle those things. But it's pretty simple. I think when most, most of the time there's folks that want to see something done in East Texas in the Piney Woods in their backyard yeah. um, on their properties, it, it's pretty simple where they want to spend their dollar. Now, now Qual Coalition has actually um, sponsored um, our research in East Texas as well. Um, so those folks, um, they, they've, they've uh, reached out to that part of the world um, as well as West Texas. So um, I could see there being some rubs, but I, I don't um, really look at it that way. I, I see it as how can we um, strategize because we all have the same goals and efforts and that's to, um, that's bringing back Bob White and working on them to, uh, to have the best populations that we can have. Well, I mean, as someone who doesn't live out West or in East Texas, and I'm just stuck here in North Texas where there are no quail, uh, I, I mean, just the casual observer, hey, more organizations is better, right? Um, sure. you know, someone, you know, I just wanted to ask you that because it's certainly a, a juggling act. And uh, and I think, like you said, people want to see the fruit of their labor in their backyard. So, right. Um, yeah, it's all about that communication, you know, we see where the folks' interests lie. You know, sometimes you end up seeing that folks grew up in East Texas or something like that. And they're like, you know, I, I'd really like to see something there or whatever. So it's our job just to um, communicate but respect each other's um, donors and, and bounds. Um, but transparency is key and i don't see we haven't had any issues yet um so i I don't foresee there being any yeah well i think it's great that that there is an an initiative now in in east texas to bring those birds back um i i I lived in texarkana for almost a year right out of college and spent a lot of time out at lake wright patman and i never saw anything uh that made me think quail are going to be here but it sure would have been right. cool if they were, you know. Uh, so yeah, it'll be a, a huge paradigm shift in that part of the world, um, quite honestly. Um, but you know, I see a lot of a lot of similarities between West Texas and and East Texas. Um, you trade cows for trees, and you have a very similar situation. You have socially a situ- same situation um, between the economics, folks grazing versus the folks growing timber. Um, it's similar in, in a respect. Um, so, but, you know, the, the culture of prescribed fire is something that is lacking, but absolutely necessary for East Texas. So um, you could have um, fewer trees, but if you're not burning to keep that mid-story down and keep the right um, components of habitat, shrubs, forbs, grasses, bare ground, all, all, all that stuff in check, um, then it can be a, a problem. So I don't know that that's a big, uh, a big deal in East Texas yet. And there's, there's a lot of efforts to restore fire on the landscape in that, in that region. And across Texas, really, um, but and we're having those conversations now because that'll be utmost um, utmost importance in bringing quail back to that area. Well, okay, so fire key, and who doesn't like burning stuff uh, in the name of conservation? I mean, I think every guy, it's it's some on some level. There's a little pyromaniac in all of us. So, um, <laughs> what about as we're wrapping things up? What about our rainfall? this year it's been a pretty wet year 
for a lot of Texas. And you generally speaking, if it's timely, that means good nest production. Um, how are things looking? Um, and you could say, you know, geographically where you're at West Texas, um, you know, the sure. hill country still has good pockets of Bob whites, but, um, Sure. So the Rolling Plains, my forecast, it may be a little premature. And I know folks are waiting with bated breath to know and have an idea what the populations might be. But I do believe they're still going to be below average for, for multiple reasons. We have had great rains. We've, we've had um, and, and good reproduction, I believe, at least on the research ranch. We have multiple study sites in northwest Texas, either through translocation projects or on site at the research ranch. Um, and we've seen good reproduction, good nest initiation rates, but we just came into season with so few birds. And that had an effect. That was an artifact of the last couple of years, but also we had this um, terrible winter storm, which didn't help things. Um, so despite having great rainfall and perhaps good reproduction, we have to compensate for such poor survival coming in the nesting season. Um, we're going to need a couple of years, a couple of good years like this to actually see the growth. And we're also seeing some ramifications from this um, wet weather and this crazy winter weather. Um, in the rolling plains, te Texas wintergrass has just exploded. Oh. And that tends to stifle for production and, and broodering habitat and, um, and get very thick. So there's, there's a lot of things at play besides just cool temperatures and this and that and the number of birds that are brought into the season. So I, I'm, I'm going to say that's probably going to be not as great as folks are hoping, but it's, it, should be pretty decent if you're managing, you had birds to come in and get some good stock. Now in East Texas, of course, there's not, unless you're doing management, I'm not sure that it'll be uh, too relevant. But on that note, um, I think the stability and rainfall in that region is one of the virtues for, you know, having an effort in that area, you know, south the semi-arid regions of Texas, South Texas, West Texas, the Rolling Plains. Um, there's very little stability in bobwhite populations. They're boom and bust, um, but they're not like that everywhere. In the Red Hills and, and Albany region of um, Florida and Georgia, it's, it's relatively stable. Um, it's since I've been here, since I've been visiting tall timbers and everything for the last five years or so, it's been amazing to hunt here. And if folks are just doing the management, the rain comes. Now we could have a drought, but a drought is 40 inches of rain here. And it's right. the same in, in East Texas. So there's a virtue to having a lot of rain too, but uh, it, it has to be combated with good management. Mm -hmm. And so like geographically, last question, where is that uh, Tall Timbers facility set up in Texas? Yeah, we're stationed right in the heart of the Piney Woods. Our initial focus and our initial project is in Northern Polk County, okay. east of Onalaska. And that's where we hope to establish facilities and, um, and basically have the whole program. We don't have um, large facilities, um, you know, or anything like that. So most of our efforts are going to the research and outreach, visiting landowners, right management plans, working with folks one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so that, that's where we're starting. We're starting small. I don't want to have a shotgun attempt or shotgun approach. And same thing with the rolling plains. We have a shotgun approach. Um, that may not work. We're really working on a cohesive group in a co cohesive area before moving out, I think is key um, to building the landscape that quail need to sustain those populations through time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Brad, it's nice getting to know you, man. And uh, certainly want to say thanks again to Quail Coalition and, and Park City's Quail specifically for uh, everything that they do. 
as far as conservation and quail research goes. And uh, I look forward to, to many more conversations in the future. Absolutely. I appreciate your time and having me on. All right. Take it easy, brother. You too. Have a good Good luck with that puppy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There he goes. Brad Kubechka of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Get a puppy, they said. It'll be great, they said. (laughs) Oh, boy. That segment of the show brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in San Antonio and Marion, right outside of New Braunfels, Texas. Josh and Becky Gunther do amazing work. I'm proud to call them my friends and also incredible taxidermists. They've been taking care of me for over a decade. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at GR, the number eight mounts for your next trophy mount. Uh, Unfortunately, just looking at the clock, we got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to both of our guests today, Brad Kubechka, as well as uh, outdoor writer Joel Nelson. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors.